And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Adam Kinzinger is a six-term Republican member of Congress, but there are a lot of long-term members of Congress. What distinguishes Kinzinger, what has made him notable, particularly during this dark period we just lived through after the November election, was that he put his career and safety at risk to stand up to extremism and a president of his own party. I sat down with him yesterday to hear that history through his words. Here's that conversation. Congressman Adam Kinzinger, it's great to see you again. We did a podcast some years back. I'm I'm not going to rehearse everything that we talked about then. Anyone who wants a really good background on Adam Kinzinger and his life history uh, should refer back to that. But you've you've lived a lot lately. (laughs) That is worth. Well, that was uh, all pre-insurrection. Now we post-insurrection. Yeah, yeah, and everything leading up to it. You know, there was a brilliant piece in the Washington Post today uh, that was based on an interview with you. And among the many things that were great about it was your description of that day, January 6th, and the insurrection. And let's just start there, because I was struck by two things. One is that you brought a gun to work that day. I mean, not to the floor of the House, but but to your office and to the Capitol complex, which was unusual. You're a, you're a military man. We'll talk about that. And you warned your wife, who works for who worked for Vice President Pence, not to come to work that day. And I'm wondering what you knew that made you have such a sense of foreboding about what was going to happen that day. So my wife had actually, she quit with Penn. She was at DHS as an assistant secretary and, and wasn't working anymore. So I, I, uh, I told her, though, you know, because she travels now back and forth with me. And I, I told her, initially, I didn't even want her to come to D.C. And she wasn't going to have any of that. So I told her to stay at home. And, uh, and I'll tell you, this is, none of this was a surprise. None of it. I mean, I've, I've been really kind of researching conspiracy theories, because for me as a Republican, I think it's the most corrosive thing to our party currently. And uh, and so all you got to do is look at Twitter. And Twitter was talking about, you know, that there's going to be violence. We're going to, you know, take back the Capitol. And you, you look at like QAnon and what these people believe. And look, it's not irrational if you truly believe that the government is run by Satanist pedophiles and not, you know, we the people, if you truly believe that, then a reaction like that's not entirely unexpected. And so I, I just knew it. In fact, I had, a, I, I had a couple media things I said I predicted violence, and, and, uh, and I had a call on the, uh, with the Republican conference and said the same thing. And uh, I was shut down pretty quick, but, you know, I guess history unfortunately proved me right. What do you mean you were shut down? They just didn't believe it? Nah, they didn't believe it. You know, I was talking about it from the perspective of we're getting ready not to certify an election that we know should be certified because, you know, we don't have the courage to tell people the truth. You know, it's uncomfortable to tell people, you know, what they don't want to hear if you're a politician because it's a much easier conversation to agree. But, you know, we've been doing that for years and it's where it got us. So, yeah, just watching that. I mentioned it on the big conference, so all Republican congressmen. And uh, was shut down. Like, okay, thanks, Adam. Next question. You know, the um, you talk about conspiracy theories. Of course, the biggest conspiracy theory, uh, 
lately has been that conspiracy theory that the election was somehow stolen. And so you could see how people who believe that uh, could then believe that it was their patriotic duty to stop you guys from doing what the Constitution required, which was to take the last step in certifying Biden's uh, election. So tell me about that day. Tell me, tell me, you, you had this, you had this sense that bad things were going to happen. You brought a gun. Had you ever brought a gun to the Capitol before? Uh, I guess I had maybe once or twice, but I, I usually don't. I carry pretty much everywhere I go. Um, I have DC concealed carry in Illinois and, but typically I never brought, bring into the Capitol. There's so many police, right? And if you're, I think if you, up until recently, if you bring a gun on the Capitol, you're just trying to be cool at that point. But, uh, you know, so I never did, but I did that day. And, you know, look, I, I, so I went down to the floor at one o'clock. That's when the proceedings were starting and, uh, it was crowded. There was a big deal about too many people on the floor. And, uh, and in fact, a lot of members went up to the gallery, which ended up being a, a problem when all this yeah. was happening. But, um, I decided to come back to my office and I was like, I can watch it on C-SPAN. I'll go down and vote when I need to. And that's when I started seeing Twitter, you know, the, I, I have, so my, my office is basically on Rayburn. I can see some of, you know, what was going on, but I had my window open and I heard what sounded like gunshots. It was non-lethal, you know, flashbangs and stuff. And, and I'm like, well, this is not sounding like a peaceful protest. You know, I saw the president and Don Jr. and all those people's speech prior, which, man, if I was out there and a true believer, I'd probably be compelled to action as well. And, uh, but as this started, my, I called my wife on the phone. At that point, the Capitol Alert system goes off, which is eerie, and I hear panic in the announcer's voice. I've only heard uh, that whole system one other time, and, uh, and I got the chills, frankly. And, and, and I remember, look, I don't often publicly talk about my kind of Christianity because I think, you know, the, the role of a politician is not to be a preacher. But I'll tell you, I stood up, and I felt a real dark kind of feeling like a, a sense of evil kind of descending over the place. And I don't feel that ever, right? It's not a, I'm not a guy that sees a demon everywhere, but I felt it. And interestingly, talked to a member of Congress later that said he was talking to the over 100 injured police officers as they were hunkered down. And he said, all of them said to him, it was evil. They saw evil. And this wasn't a meeting of the fellowship of Christian police. It was just cops saying yeah. the same word. Yeah. And you, you were in there with your staff, I assume, in your office. No, actually, I told my staff to stay home that day, too. So it's oh, just very, no kidding. Nope. So I had nope. this gun. Were you prepared to use it? Oh, I was. Yeah, I'm uh, obviously not hoping to. Um, I had locked the doors here and really to get into where a member of Congress is. If you're kind of barricaded, you have to go through two pretty solid locked doors. But there was about a half hour when, you know, we knew that the whole complex basically had been breached and we didn't know anything else. Terrible communication, by the way, to members of Congress because nobody knew what was going on. Um, and I, so I was basically barricaded in my office. I had the gun out and I'm like, you know, it, this, it may come down to, I have to defend myself. That is surreal to think about a it United is. States congressman barricaded in his office, uh, armed and thinking that you would have to use it. Uh, to defend your life. Now, what did your, you, now, did you end up being um, uh, uh, quarantined with your 
colleagues? Did you go? Did you go to a secure location, or did you just stay in your office? I stayed in my office, and honestly, we had no idea at all what was going on. We didn't know was there a secure location. I had no idea my colleagues were in a in a certain area, the ones especially that evacuated from the floor. Um, I mean, the floor business had been going on until people started basically pounding on the doors. There was about a I don't know what the timeline, 15, 20 minutes where there were people that had already breached the complex and the debate was still going on. And, you know, with the Senate, obviously, they adjourned at that moment when you saw that police officer kind of leading the mob away from the Senate. Um, But, yeah, I just sat in my office till late that night. I'll tell you, David, a really important thing is I worry that the military is becoming political. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, but... On the on just even the debate about the military, but I'll tell you, having the guard here is amazing. The guard is am- they're amazing people. And when I left that night, it's probably eight or nine o'clock, I guess. I go out of the Rayburn garage and I saw my first guard troop. There was a group, maybe six of them, kind of getting their gear together. And I I broke down and I I got pretty tearful because you know it's like seeing your protectors come right. And for me as a guardsman, being proud to see them do that, but also very mourning at the fact that we had to have the guard come in. You are a 20-year veteran of the Air National Guard. Lieutenant Colonel, is that your? Yes, sir. That's your rank. So there are two interpretations of why the guard was slow to be deployed. Uh, One is that there was a reluctance to, uh, you know, appear to militarize what was a public protest um, or or policing of the the protest. But the other uh, was more insidious, which was that there was a reluctance to uh, to move, uh, to control a crowd that was there protesting on behalf of the commander in chief. And I'm wondering uh, where you land on that or whether we know. So I don't think we know. There's a lot more to know. One thing we do know, um, the processes of the military and particularly the guard are very antiquated and very complex. And when you have people that now get concerned about image, and I can understand some of that because, again, the idea of having military on the Capitol is not what you want to do. But you now have people that are in kind of self-preservation mode, including in the Pentagon, that are scared to make bold decisions because they may not get promoted. And uh, and so the image concern, I think, number one, led to a significant delay. Um, there were, I think, 400 D.C. guardsmen manning traffic points. Initially, the guard said, well, we didn't use them because they couldn't, they didn't have access to riot gear. Well, they do. They had to go to RFK Armory. They could have been there in 30 minutes. Um, and there was a rapid reaction force on standby. My, more, my bigger concern, though. So I don't know. I, I don't think the president of the United States, like, intentionally denied the guard. But the president of the United States is the commander-in-chief of the D.C. Guard. Mostly the operational control is given to the secretary of the Army. Um, But when you have a president that was calling senators during this, trying to convince them to still object, he was watching Fox, he was tweeting really inflammatory stuff, um, and he was not obviously on the phone saying, get your asses to the Capitol with the Guard. Um, because if the president would have done that, stuff would have moved quickly, and none of those barriers would exist. Um, and he didn't. So 
I don't know if it was intentional yeah. or not. I, I doubt it was intentionally denying the guard, but I also think it was the president not exercising leadership, which bank, frankly had been the case since the election. It was all about him and his image and, and not about the continuation of government. But I think there's going to be a lot more uh, that we'll find out. So your wife, uh, Sophia, as we mentioned, had worked for Pence. Uh, let's talk about Pence. And the, you know, the crowd was chanting, uh, hang Mike Pence. Uh, and we're looking for Pence. Uh, and uh, how, I mean, it's such an extraordinary thing because he had been so faithful and so loyal uh, to, uh, to the president. And here his life was in jeopardy. And apparently he didn't hear from the president for days, not, not just in that moment, but for days. Um, what, what were your thoughts on that? So it's typical of Donald Trump. He demands unfailing loyalty. Um, and the second, you're not loyal. And in Pence's case, he was loyal. He was also loyal to the Constitution, and he just literally couldn't have done anything differently. Um, and it becomes a personal affront to Trump. So it starts to hurt his narrative that, yeah, I may not be president in, in a, you know, a few weeks, but it's only because it was stolen, not because I failed at something. Um, and it goes to show that, once again, that one of the biggest supporters of Donald Trump, who's carried most of his water, who's given, you know, who, who gave Donald Trump basically props, I guess, within the evangelical community, was now and is publicly enemy number one. I mean, look at Jeff Sessions. This was the first member of Congress or the Senate to endorse Trump. We all thought he was crazy. Um, he's now persona non grata, and you can go down the line. And the most remarkable thing about the insurrection wasn't even just Mike Pence. It was the fact that number two, number three, and number four in the line of secession for the presidency were all within mm -hmm. 50 to 100 feet of rioters who wanted to kill them. And, and the actual threat of decapitation of the government was significant. Do you, uh, is this it for Pence? I mean, can he, within the Republican Party, does the, uh, does the black mark of uh, Donald Trump uh, his his dis, disapprobation of Pence, does that make Pence uh, unviable within the party? So I, I, I like Mike Pence personally. I think no matter where the party goes, he's done a lot of damage to himself. So my hope is that the party goes away from Donald Trump. You know, it's kind of like mm -hmm. uh, pushing out the Birch Society. And, you know, not the people, the supporters, no. But the the far right supporters and, the, and, and Donald Trump himself, yeah, gone, out, right? We need him out of the party. And if that happens, uh, I think in 2024 and in the future, it will be nobody that ever carried Donald Trump's water that's going to be a presidential contender. Um, if we go back to being the Donald Trump party, uh, yeah, he crossed them there. He crossed them by doing his job and following the Constitution. And, uh, you know, look, as this, you, no matter what you believe politically, um, I will say I want a functional Democratic Party. Democrats should say we want a functional Republican Party so that we can go back to old school, you know, political brawls and not real fisticuffs. And uh, mm -hmm. it'll happen because they have to, right? They represent half the country. But, man, there's a lot of damage that's been done to our brand uh, that we have to overcome. What would give you hope uh, that the Republican Party is going to change anytime soon? Watching 147 or, uh, of your colleagues uh, vote to uh, to uh, object to these election returns based on absolute 
untruths. Uh, and yesterday, as we speak, uh, the United States Senate, 45 members of the Senate, uh, went along with Rand Paul's uh, uh, motion to dismiss the impeachment on the grounds that it was unconstitutional to try a uh, former president, uh, about which most constitutional uh, scholars disagree, or with m- which most scholars disagree. I mean, those are not positive <laughs> signs about which direction your party's going, is it? No, or not at all. And, and, but here's my hope, and I'm generally overly optimistic when it comes to these things, so who knows. But my hope is, you know, my concern with having broad impeachment to the floor was you're going to make Donald Trump a victim, and he excels at being a victim. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't think it should have been brought to the floor, but when it came to the floor, I, I mean, and I had no choice but to make a decision. It was the easiest decision I've ever made in my life, honestly, to vote to impeach. Um, but I, I think what you might see now is a little bit of the last gasp of rallying around the flag. You know, people that supported Donald Trump still feel a connection to him, even though every day, you know, we think less about him. Uh, every day of like peace out of the Biden administration is just like, I feel like, you know, just relaxing, um, even though I disagree with a lot of the policies. But um, I think every day that goes by, he's exp- things are learned about him. He doesn't have the trappings of the presidency. It's like waking up, I've used the crude example, but it's perfect, waking up Saturday morning from a real bad Friday night bender, and it takes you a little bit to look around and see all the empty bottles and everything and kind of wake up and go, what the hell did I do last night? So I think we're at the beginning of, we just got out of bed trying to process what we're seeing and we're going to say that soon. If we don't, the Republican Party's really in trouble for a long time. But I'm I maintain optimism, and I will fight, frankly, to my political death to bring it to a healthy place to be a a part of this country that's going to be important going forward. Well, there may be some people back in Illinois who are willing to accommodate you on that fighting to your political <laughs> death thing. Uh, there so. were. Uh, there were, you know, I noticed uh, several of the county organizations, Republican organizations, uh, you know, publicly rebuked you uh, for your vote. And I can only imagine what your email and voicemail has been like uh, and, and your office email and voicemail has been like, what, how, how significant has the hazing been from, from voters in your base? Because Trump carried your district uh, by, uh, by well into double digits, right? Yeah, and I but I beat him by fifteen percent. I just like to point that out. But who's um, counting? Yes, right, exactly. But no, look, I uh, it's been it's been what you'd expect. It's a it's a Trump supporting district. They're good, you know, Republican conservative district that have bought into the idea that Trump is a conservative. He's not. Um, but you know, and, and look, I had a I had family members, my my dad's cousins, that all signed a letter two pages handwritten in real small words with a lot of stuff in it about how I'm in the devil's army and I'm doing the work of Satan. And, you know, I've been co-opted by the elites, quote unquote, and, and disowning me. They sent a follow-up letter, by the way, a few days ago. Um, I knew all this was coming, though. You know, look, in that Washington Post article, I made the point that, you know, if you look at Band of Brothers, it's a great, you know, series about World yeah, War II. Right. There's a scene where a lieutenant says to an enlisted guy, your problem is you have hope. You have, the sooner you can recognize and accept the fact that you're all, already dead, that's how you function as a soldier. So ever since I've been in Congress, 
I've always said I'm willing to take a career-ending vote because in my mind, I'm not going to be in Congress when I'm 70. There's life after this, but I will always remember when I was a chicken shit about something so important like this, and I know that that oath I swore meant something. And so in my mind, I look at it and say, I'm going to fight to tell what I believe. I'm going to fight for the soul of the Republican Party. But I'm okay if it's the end, if it's the end of the road on that, because I'll, I'll go live a good life. I have a, a wife. She's awesome. And we'll have kids, and I'll probably go make more money if I, if I can. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. As we mentioned, you, you, you've you 20 years in the military, five different tours uh, in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. I don't know how many sorties you ended up flying. 120 uh, when you were combat in, missions. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you've put that, you've probably put that Band of Brothers thing uh, to work, not just in politics, uh, but in life. And that, the stakes there were 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 more mortal <laughs> than yeah. the ones a politician faces. So that has to that has to help. On the subject of well, let's talk I, about extremes. Yeah, Would you mind if yeah. I add something to that real quick though? So I, I've no. said to people, I've said, look, you go out and you go to the funerals of fallen soldiers. Every one of your speeches, you know, we talk about how amazing it is we have people that put their lives on the line for this country. It's all true. But then we, we lose a lot of that moral authority than when we sit around and say on something as big as this, um, my political career is more important than that following through on the Constitution. Uh, what about your personal safety? I mean, have there been um, threats associated with this as, as, as crazy and worked up as people are? Yeah, I mean, before all this, I mean, you know, there were replies to a tweet where it's a hangman's noose. And somehow it's a gif, so it like moves around and sways in the winds. You know, as this was going down, I saw tweets that like at Rep Kinzinger, where are you? You know, we're coming for you. You know, you better lock your door. Um, and then since then, we've had we've had threats and somebody that claimed they were going to expose my wife's schedule, my family's schedule, my schedule, and it's time to take physical action. Those are the ones that's talking tough. We take it seriously. The ones that don't tweet are the ones I fear because those are the people that, and I don't fear them, but the ones that I, you know, am on alert for. So, yeah, I wear body armor sometimes depending on where I am now. Um, I always have a gun with me. It sucks that I have to do that. I'm not one of these people that carry a gun so I look cool. Nobody knows I have it. But I got to defend myself if I need to and my wife. Yeah, there are nine others uh, who joined you on the Republican side. Actually, a lot was mentioned, a lot was made of the um, – of the 197 who didn't vote for impeachment on the Republican side. But the fact that 10 did was a historic uh, break from the norm, which is generally these votes tend to be uh, uh, completely correlated to party. Um, One of them was Liz Cheney, uh, who is the number three uh, leader in the House. The Freedom Caucus, I think you call them the Freedom Club, Mm -hmm. the Freedom Caucus in the House uh, has said they want to um, they want to take a run at her uh, and remove her. You don't think that's going to happen? I don't, but I, I think it was an important point to make here. Every time somebody that was part of this, let's dethrone Liz Cheney, complains about cancel culture. So look, 
I hate cancel culture. I think you hate cancel culture, right? Like, we just, well, let's have freedom in this country. But this is right-wing Republican cancel culture. So what was Liz Cheney's cardinal sin? Well, in a vote of conscience, she voted her conscience. And because it makes some people in the Freedom Club feel like, now I have to go out and defend why I voted the way I did, because Liz Cheney, this strong woman who has been an amazing leader, voted her conscience, we have to cancel her, right? That's How are you ever going to get to 50 plus one to win as Republicans if the people that are voting their conscience you're extraditing in order to maybe try to get more Proud Boys or something in the party? There's there's too many Proud Boys, but there's not enough to win an election with if you are going to get rid of more suburban votes and people like me and Liz. So I don't think she's going to lose her position, but I think it is probably that moment now where we have to it's going to be tough to paper over differences. We've done that for too long, and I've made it my mission to like to go to the streets to talk about what is it that conservatives believe and Republicans believe, and why is it that the party that we're in now is nothing at all like that party. Well, you're likely going to have tests not just on the Liz Cheney leadership vote, but she's going to have a primary. Uh, a bunch of others are going to have a primary. You have acquired a uh, a primary uh, opponent, I think his uh, his handle is impeach uh, Kinzinger to twenty twenty two. So there is going to be a test between uh, different visions of the Republican Party in twenty twenty two, and and presumably Trump uh, may be uh, a part of that effort, taking some of that money that he he raised under the false guise of using it to contest the election to build a, a super PAC. Uh, for himself. Let's talk about extremism. You talked about it before. Uh, you were an early, um, uh, you, you were sort of a, a Paul Revere on this QAnon thing. Uh, and you you did a video that got uh, quite a bit of uh, attention, uh, really debunking what it is all about. But that thing, you know, it is a, it is a bizarre, bizarre sort of cult-like thing. You described it before about the the deep state and pedophilia and Trump as a kind of uh, God King and um, it, it's a it's really it's really really strange and yet and yet millions of followers and now you have two members of your own caucus in Congress who are adherents uh, to this um, now one of them Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, uh, the other day, a story surfaced about the fact that in just a couple of years ago, she was, uh, she was, uh, liking and retweeting tweets talking about putting a bullet through Nancy Pelosi's head. How do, how do you, how do people, how are people allowed in Congress who are applauding threats of violence to leaders of Congress? Look, I mean, you know, obviously people can elect who they want in a district, where the where we have a thing is to say, do we accept this person as a Republican? And well, I'm not advocating yet for, you know, kicking her out of the caucus, but I think we're getting close to that where, you know, is is advocating for it's not like she tweeted something like that in two thousand and we're twenty years later and she can talk about a redemption story. This is a year ago, right? And um and it's just everyday new crazy. She's already introduced articles of impeachment against Joe Biden for being Joe yeah. Biden, I guess. Um, all these people, including her, they're out here for one reason, to be famous. 
Like I, I don't know, I don't know what my how popular I am around the country. I don't know what my name recognition around is around the country. I don't care, but I know that tomorrow I can make it ninety five percent by if I tweet something batshit crazy and become that way, I'll be famous. And I think a lot of people see that as a quick trip to fame. And that's a big problem with politics. You probably saw it in your time in politics, you know, early on where it started to transition from deep discussions about policies to quick hits about how evil the Democrats are or how evil the Republicans are. And we say, yeah, it's all metaphoric. You know, we need to we need to knock out Nancy Pelosi, right? It's all metaphoric. But the problem is eventually it doesn't become metaphoric. And and so on the conspiracy side of things, I saw this QAnon stuff happening, and I, I did that video, and I got a lot of people that said, you shouldn't do it, you're just bringing attention to them. I'm like, guys, I think it's already too late. I think the fact that we're bringing attention, we can start to disinfect that. But man, there are millions of people already doing this in the dark underground, and I think we were already too late. And the key going forward is everybody has a responsibility, and I'm, I'm not both sides in that. I'm saying... You in your own heart, when you're researching in the internet, if something seems crazy, don't take it for face value and don't share it until you've confirmed it. But leaders, let's quit trying to just reflect back people's emotions to them. And on stuff like this, be dead honest. I mean, if Trump and McCarthy and et cetera would have come out and said, QAnon's not real, none of this is true, may it have made an impact? Possibly. But you know, you start when you already have millions of adherents to something. I saw an estimate that it could be up to 10% of the country. That's 330 million people. If you have that number of adherents, it's going to be tough to deprogram people. You got to, you got to nip it early. You, you remember Trump himself, when he was asked about it, said, well, I don't know much about them, but I know they're, they, they're nice to me or they like me, which was <laughs> classic Trump. But he clearly was sort of putting his soft imprimatur uh, on them, on their craziness on their anti-Semitism and, and, and racism and all of that. But I got to push back on you on one point, which is you say you're not to the point where you think that she should be expelled from Congress. If you are, uh, if you are embracing, um, uh, you know, uh, tweets that call for the assassination of the Speaker of the House, like what would it take to get you to the point where you'd say, you know what? This person should not be in the United States Congress. I respect the voters, but the fact of the matter is we can't have people here. We've seen what happened when we have leaders who give yeah. aid and comfort to ter- terrorism and to conspiracy theories and to uh, and 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 we we have to draw a line in the sand. Wouldn't that send a message? Yeah, so I, I guess I, I I didn't mean necessarily that she should stay here with welcome arms. What I'm saying is we're going to be going through a very, I think, pretty deep dive in terms of what led to where we are, who did what, were there members of Congress coordinating with the insurrectionists, and I think setting out then standards when it comes to things like social media, because right now, we don't really have, and and, it gets tough because you're getting into the area of freedom of speech, but here's the thing with the freedom of speech argument. You know, my side keeps talking about, you know, Parler should be able to do whatever it wants, and Twitter should, look, you cannot walk into a movie theater and scream fire, right? right? That is not protected speech. Violence cannot be protected speech. I think Twitter was right to bring the president's social media down. I think it's right to shut down Parler because 90% of the threats I got were crazy things on Parler, right? And quite honestly, I have a lot of disagreements with the left on policy, 
But I don't see, maybe I'm just, you know, naive. I don't see the kind of conspiracy theories on the left that I see on the right and that I have seen on the right for 10 or 20 years. And so I, we may be at the threshold to kick her out of Congress, but I don't want to get ahead of myself because I know we're going to go into a, uh, having a situation of a committee where we look at the insurrection and then also put down standards. Yeah. I mean, the shouting fire in a crowded theater is now not just sort of an abstract theory. Uh, people shouted fire and started an insurrection. Yeah. Um, and I, can I say one thing, too, about that? Just you, you, It may come up, but I, I don't want to forget this. So yeah. people on my side constantly point to the riots of the summer, okay? And they say, how is this any different? I gotta, and I, and I, I need to be clear about this. The violence in the riots we saw in the destruction was terrible, and I spoke out against it multiple times. Um, there is a very big difference, though, between you know something that came from legitimate grievances about police brutality that exploded um, to, to a level it definitely shouldn't have gotten near, but there is a big difference between that and attacking a branch of government that is the very underpinning of our ability to do policy without resorting to violence. Politics was created to solve conflict without violence. And what we, when violence visits politics like it did, it's the failure of politics. And it is a historic implication that will change this country forever. So my, my friends that say, yes, it was wrong, but nobody was speaking out against the BLM riots. First off, yeah, they were, but this is not in a millionth of the same league as that because this is an attack on the Article I branch of the Constitution, and you almost could have had the entire federal government decapitated the entire line of secession to the president. Not the same at all. Yeah, you know, I was looking at a poll the other day um, from right before the election, and the question uh, was, uh, well, well, let, let, let me just summarize it. Eighty nine percent of Trump supporters said they'd be very concerned that Biden's election uh, would lead to lasting harm uh, to the U.S. And the same the opposite was true of Trump supporters. And, you know, one of the hallmarks of you, you heard what Trump said at the at, uh, at that rally before they stormed the Capitol. He said, if we're not strong, if we don't fight back, you won't have a country left. Mm-hmm. I mean, when and, and, you know, that kind of apocalyptic language um, is, uh, you know, is incendiary. Uh, so my, my question to you, Adam, you know, you um, you didn't support Trump in, in 2016. Um, you 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 were support. You know, you you are notably bipartisan in your actions and, and your staff was quick to remind me of that before we did this podcast, but I knew that. Uh, I know you. Um, and uh, But you voted with Trump, you know, on policy grounds, 90, 92% of the time. You didn't vote to impeach the last time, which was sort of a precursor to this. I mean, it was an anti-democratic act that he was being impeached for. But more than anything, you, as sensitive as you are, and you've spoken out about it along the way, You've seen him put logs on this fire for five years, give, giving aid to conspiracy theories, aid and comfort, uh, defending white supremacists, um, and, the, and, the, and the like. Um, how, how do you come then to, um, to endorse him for re-election in 2020, given the threat of all of that and 
you know, I mean, or is it just was it the rite of passage to get through that election? No, look, that's a fair question. I'm actually glad you brought it up because there's a lot to unpack there. But first off, um, I did not endorse him. I voted for him, um, but I was not on his reelect. Uh, I was the only member of Congress from Illinois, a Republican, that was not on his reelect team. Uh, they didn't like me, and that's yeah, fine. I don't think they invited you, right? I mean, they, they, they right, you know, yeah. yeah. So, well, they do, uh, but anyway, too, but but yeah. so you know, for me, it was a matter of okay, it's a policy vote at that moment, but uh, you know, voting on policy, it, then voting with Trump 92% number. Look, we've used this to attack Democrats when it's like they vote with Pelosi 95% of the time. All that shows is that you're a Republican, so the, the agenda that Donald Trump went forward with. Uh, was actually our Republican agenda. The tax reform was our tax reform that he took credit for, you know, over and over. And so I think that number is kind of like, eh. And plus, people need to understand, there are Republicans. I'm going to continue to be a conservative Republican, but what I'm trying to do is to defend uh, what I think is the 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 uh, the good kind of past of conservatism and the necessary part and not this personality. But on the, if I could go back in time, to election day, knowing what I know now, I would not have voted for Donald Trump. Um, and if I could go back knowing what I know now to the first impeachment, I would have voted to impeach him. Now, that was a tough vote for me to vote no on that first one. Uh, but if you go back in time, you remember it felt like it was rushed. Um, and so I, I went with no. But keep in mind on that. There, you're trying to prove something that happened and an intention behind it, you know, with whatever evidence you have. I lived this. I lived January 6th. It was like basically being on the phone call equivalent of the impeachment and then having a conversation with Donald Trump where he says, my goal is to influence the election. Um, this was a very different vote on that. But, I would, you know, yeah, if I could, I'll, I'm man enough to admit if I could go back in time, I'd vote differently. Uh, but I also know that both those votes I took on the first impeachment and on the election, I did not do for political reasons. But it's, it kind of speaks to uh, some of the conversation we had earlier. You know, um, you're, a, you're, a, you're a person of conscience and you've proven it. Um, but um, it's kind of a slippery slope, you know, and you see it in your colleagues. The, you know, you, you sort of he, Trump was constantly testing the parameters and the goalposts shifted, you know, of what was acceptable things. How many times did all of us say, well, he'll never get away with that? Uh, and each time he did, it emboldened him to 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 push them e even further. And the more that people said, well, the more that people defended them, his his actions, uh, like in the last impeachment, it um you know, it it, 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 it it inexorably led to this because he just doesn't believe in rules and laws and norms and democratic institutions on which, you know, the, on a policy on a policy grounds. And I just want to stop here uh, for a second, because there's something I want to ask you about back on the military uh, and this extremism issue. But um, uh, you, you say, you know, you supported him on policy grounds, but you you're a free trade Republican. Mm -hmm. He is not. Uh, you are a, uh, you'd call yourself a fiscal conservative. Um, he demonstrably was not. I mean, you know, he, he spent freely and, 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 and uh, you know, probably differently than I would. Uh, but, um, 
but deficits exploded uh, under him. So, you know, there are there's sort of basic precept. You know, he he was, you know, I think suspiciously um, supine in front of uh, Putin. Mm. Uh, you've been very tough on Russia. Uh, I mean, there, you know, his foreign policy was not your foreign policy. So on really major pieces of who you are, he was not that. And that's one of the divisions between the two Republican parties right now. And it feels like the the uh, the weight of of the of the base of his base is still the dominant one here. And that the kind of traditional Republicanism you represent is not is not on the rise within your party. Yeah. So look, I think, I think the traditional Republicanism I represent exists. I, you know, if you look 20%, at least right now of Republicans think impeachment was right. That's the core starting ground. I think there are people that over time will kind of be deprogrammed a little from Trumpism. Um, but yeah, there were very different competing views. So on the economic side, you know, I think we needed to lower corporate tax rates because we were losing a lot of corporations overseas. And I actually think, you know, that did stem the flow. There's a lot of things on that level. But on foreign policy, I was very outspoken, actually, about it. And, you know, uh, at one point he had retweeted some pastor that had talked about there would be a civil war. I said it was reprehensible. Um, I met with him twice over his decision to abandon the Kurds in Syria. Um, and I was very outspoken about that. So, you know, while I'm not I didn't wake up every day looking for a reason to oppose the president. It's same thing. I, you know, I won't look for a reason to oppose president Biden either. Um, I do feel comfortable with the fact that I spoke out when necessary and there may be a time or two I should have and didn't. Um, but you know, that's, uh, I feel comfortable with where I was there, but I think, um, yeah, I mean, our foreign policy, you know, when we go into a Trump administration, you know, we were considered the ones that wanted to go beat ISIS. We wanted to defeat terrorism. We want to push back against Russia. Now, um, yeah, China's a big enemy. And and part of that, and I don't mean enemy, is strong competitor. Um, and now people, it's become political now to attack China or to attack Russia. Pick your side. I don't like them both. And I want to stand up to both of them. Um, ISIS, you can't defeat ISIS, turn around, tuck tail and leave as they're growing and brag about defeating the caliphate. You didn't. And uh, he just, I actually think if you look at Donald Trump, um, I, I think killing Soleimani was a good move. I think it, it had a real impact, and I think that was a courageous decision. But a lot of his stuff that he did, he really was, he's actually kind of a really big scaredy cat. Um, he is, he talks tough, but I really think he is scared of a lot, and he did not exercise leadership really. I mean, when he's sitting there, you hear all the reports of, He's trying to figure out if we should, you know, attack Syria or not after a chemical weapons attack. And he's asking an intern what they think in the Oval Office. Or he's got donors and friends he's calling on the phone. Those people shouldn't be making a decision. But the, I really think he was a coward in a lot of areas. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. On Russia, you saw Biden spoke to Putin yesterday, and on the agenda, at least as it was read out, were uh, all the things that maybe should have been raised in the moment. Uh, The uh, cyber attack on this country, 
putting a bounty on our troops in Afghanistan, something that must be particularly close to you, but should be to every uh, American. Uh, uh, Navalny and and the uh, abuses that are going on in that country now. Um, do you are are you what 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 would your advice be to to uh, to Biden? moving forward, how should he deal with this? Understand that there are things on which we need to cooperate, nuclear weapons being one of them. They made some progress on the START treaty. So what would your advice be to, to draw a line and make clear that, uh, you know, we're not going to be, uh, we're not going to be uh, supine in, 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 in the face of their attacks. I mean, that it's a different day. It is. And, and I, I think it's important for Americans, you know, in this kind of dark moment we're in a little bit to take a deep breath and remember that we are still unchecked, the most powerful country in the world. And I'm not talking just military. Obviously, our military is great, um, but it's our even our economic power, our ideas power, our, our multiculturalism is a threat to other countries, right? Because you know, we show how people of different religions, backgrounds, thoughts, et cetera, can govern themselves successfully, even in low moments. My advice to President Biden would be simple. I think a lot of the Trump administration policies against Russia were were good. You know, we just, I think, killed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. That was a sanction that I'd put into the NDAA. Um, Most of what you're about to recite were actions of Congress, not actions that were initiated by Trump. You're right. And, but I think, so take, some of those actions and marry it with words that match, right? I have never once heard Donald Trump say a negative word about Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un for that matter, but never a word about Vladimir Putin. But he attacked Angela Merkel a ton. He, he would, you know, attack leaders of, uh, of Macron, you know, Trudeau. Like those are actually our really good friends. You may not like them personally, but that's those are our biggest allies. You attack them, but you never say a word about Putin. I don't understand it. We'll find out more. I don't know if it's an affinity for strongmen or if they have something on them. I don't know. But um, my advice to Biden would be, we're not looking for war. Our energy is a really strong power against Russia. So let's help Europe develop their own energy sources as well as, as well as the move to greener energy. And uh, But understand that Putin will advance until he hits a wall. He's, he's, he will advance until he hits a wall. We killed 400 Russian troops in Syria a couple years ago, and Putin was very quiet in Syria for a while until he realized that he wouldn't have to face that again. What do you think the opportunity for Biden is to find any partners on your side? Um, Because, you know, uh, the reality is you've got a very narrowly divided House. Kevin McCarthy is hopeful to become Speaker in 2022. Mitch McConnell would like to regain the majority leader post in 2022. 10 and, and, and beyond. Well, really, starting when Obama came, became president, that was a driving force. Uh, do you think that there, there is a coalition of the willing to be built here? Uh, or are the pulls of, of, uh, of our polarization just too great? I think there is a coalition of the willing on some things. You know, when we talk about, you know, internet privacy or, you know, things like that, um, I think, I, I think especially infrastructure. I mean, I've been in Congress for 10 years. I've been talking about infrastructure for 10 years. And Republican orthodoxy says you can never raise the gas tax. Democrats do this. We, it's easy. You got to raise the gas tax. You got to have an inflation on it. And we need to build the best infrastructure the world has ever seen, right? 
Um, and so I do think there's an opportunity for things like that, some foreign policy issues, rebuilding, you know, rebuilding the military smartly. So let's get rid of the inefficiencies in the Pentagon and work towards that and have more accountability. Um, but I also think we're, we do a bit of a disservice by talking about unity, I think, because we're never going to achieve full unity. Um, yeah, well, unity isn't unanimity, and it never was. Right. It's good faith. It is, yeah, good faith. And I think it's talking about, again, what is a loyal opposition, right? I can be opposed to President Biden's policies in different areas, but be loyal to him and be loyal to the country and go back to this idea of we swear to the flag first. We don't talk about – I never – I travel overseas a lot prior to COVID in my role. I've never once under President Obama said to a public figure overseas that I disagreed with anything um, because I believed we had to show unity. And I think we can – as Republicans, we have to get back to that. We have an opportunity. On the military, uh, all the years you've put in there, I want I want your perspective on the fact that there were so many uh, people who had connections to the military, either active or or, or uh, uh, as veterans, who were part of this uh, insurrection. Um, does the military have a problem, and and what does the military do about it? I don't know if I'd say does the military have a problem, but I I, I do have some concerns, um, and I think frankly. I can't reveal yet, but I think there's going to be more information that's even more concerning. And, uh, you know, look, mil- typically military members are going to be more Republican, typically, you know, especially if you look at different branches. An Air Force officer, probably about 80% of us are Republicans. But by the way, the vast majority of my Air Force officer friends are Republicans who have had enough of Donald Trump, you know, and then you go, like, there's all these different kinds of areas. But I do think the military needs to more aggressively do a couple of things, which is we got to get back to civics lessons that I think a lot of people, even that joined the military, haven't had. You know, the benefits of um, the Democratic and the Republican Party, how to talk to each other. Um, I think we need to consider putting on the SF-86, which is the security clearance paperwork, if you have an affiliation with QAnon. Um, We do that about communists. Are you part of a communist group or a socialist group? QAnon's one of those, and uh, and I think we need to do a better job of vetting that. We don't want to take away people's freedom of thought and expression, of course, but when you wear that uniform, um, you, you it's like me. I'm a partisan Republican, but the second I'm on guard duty and wear that uniform, I am apolitical until that end of that status comes up, and th- people need to be reminded of that. And, I, and And the other thing is former generals that all go on the news um, need to think about their message. It's one thing to go on and have foreign policy discussions. It's another thing to be General McNerney and go on and say that you know for a fact that the election was stolen and Donald Trump X Y Z. What about you, Adam? You're you you know politics being what it is. Um, there are a lot of folks who are speculating that um, this burst of attention that you're getting is a springboard for running uh, for statewide office. In Illinois, Illinois being a Democratic state, it, it has a history of moderate uh, Republicanism that is quite different than uh, what we're seeing in quarters of your party uh, right now. Uh, and you may get redistricted out. Um, Illinois is going to lose a district. Uh, yours could easily be merged with another. Um, what what are, what are your 
where it's going through your head here? And do you see yourself running for anything in 2022? So I'm glad you asked me because I see, you know, I obviously see my press clippings and I see the speculation that I'm trying to set myself up to win a general election or whatever. And I, to me, it's actually more sad that it's hard for people to understand that somebody would take a vote of conscience than to try to find a political reason behind it. Um, I'll say to anybody that thinks my vote was, was for politics, they don't know me. And I would say now they don't know politics because, you know, you have to get through a primary. And would it make me more able to win a, a general election? Probably. Um, but that's not why I did it. Um, I did it knowing full well it could very well be uh, terminal to my career. But I also knew that I couldn't live with myself having, you know, tried to just protect it and just felt like the one time I was called to do a really tough duty, I didn't do it. Um, so what's my future? Look, I, I had around the November, December time frame, I was thinking a little about, you know, is there a statewide path? Is there is that where I should go? I wasn't making plans, but, you know, you start to kind of go through those calculations, but everything changed on January 6th. And uh, I know that my passion is, in fact, I'm more passionate about this country than I think I was January 5th even. Um, I know my passion is the restoration of the Republican Party. I know I may go down fighting like that. Um, I really don't know what it means for me next. And, you know, is it running again in the House? Maybe. Is it, you know, that's what I'd like to do. Is it statewide? Probably not. Um, is it something, you know, bigger later? I don't know. I just know that in my five meter target to use a military term, which is whatever your nearest target is. Um, I know that the battle right now is on to restore the GOP and that's what I'm focused on doing. All right. Well, we are going to be watching with, with interest. You know, I mean, I look, I, you and I can find many, many things that we disagree about, but, um, we all ought to, embrace uh, what democracy means and what democracy demands. And the measure of political courage is whether you're willing to risk yourself. You know, my standard line, which I say too often probably, is that there's a reason Profiles and Courage was a slim volume. It's (laughs) unusual for people to put their careers at risk uh, in order to do what they think is right. So um, I applaud you for it, brother, and I'm uh, going to watch with interest what you do next. Well, thanks. And look, you know, you and I, I think over the few years, I would consider you a friend. We've developed yes. that. And, and you know, we don't, like, if, if we got in a, I think you and I could have, like, real heated, good debates on politics and then turn around and go have a beer. And, mm-hmm. you know, as an example, Peter Meyer, who's, you know, the freshman from Michigan. Yes. Um, he voted to impeach. This guy is an isolationalist, right? In the in the realm of like Rand Paul, I'm not an isolationalist. Um, I would love to go have a debate with him on the floor, but he will always. I have the most respect for him, almost of anybody, because as a freshman who has his whole career in front of him, he took a really tough vote, and he will always have my respect. And you have my respect too, because I think you facilitate. You know, whether it's on TV, whether it's in your class, whether it's here. You facilitate calm, cool, collected, serious discussions that do not descend into chaotic name-calling that doesn't win anybody over and actually does no service for democracy. Yeah, well, I hope so. Maybe it's just good taste in guests. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> Maybe. it's great to be with you. Best of luck to you. Keep in touch. Take care, my man. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. 
brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.